If you have your Bibles this morning, turn to Mark chapter 2. We'll be looking over Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through the 6th verse in chapter 3. Mark 2, 18 through 3, 6. Continuing our series on the Gospel of Mark. Before we take a short break uh, to have a short Advent series leading up to Christmas. Mark chapter 2, verse 18 through the 6th verse of chapter 3. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? Your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Who is better? Growing up as a young boy, that's an argument I had all the time. Me and my friends on the playground, who's better? Batman, Superman. Who's better? Peyton Manning, Tom Brady. Who's better? The green Power Ranger or the red one? There were intense arguments over and over, and we would just argue back and forth, saying this one's better. No, this one's better. We were children. We didn't have reasons. We said this one's green. He's better. That's it. Green is better than red. Therefore, green Power Ranger better than red Power Ranger. Done. Argument over. There's no reason behind who was better or why they were better. But Christ, who is better, gives us abundant reasons why he is better. He shows us over and over through the text of Scripture in his Gospels that he is better and why he is better, how he is better. From our text today, we can easily see four reasons, four ways that Christ is better. We don't even need a better than. He is simply better. He is better through and through. From the text today, we can see four ways that Christ is better. First of all, his presence is better. Look at the first three verses. It's a question about fasting. And Christ is telling them, first of all, that fasting for his presence is not evil. Verse 18, wherever they come to him, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and the people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and disciples of the Pharisees fast, 
for your disciples do not fast. See, John's disciples, who John the Baptist is good, Pharisees, generally we see them as bad, both of them were fasting. Fasting was not evil or good in this story. It is not something that is the point of conflict within this. It's ancillary. It's uh, a symptom of what's going on in the, the greater point that Christ is trying to make. They were both fasting, John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees. The Pharisees even fasted twice a week. They would fast on the day that Moses went up the mountain to get the Ten Commandments and on the day that he came back down. They were more pious than you or I are. But Christ never says that what they were doing is evil. He never says what they're doing is bad in any way. He's merely trying to make the point that fasting is not the point. Fasting is not the end. Fasting is not the goal. Fasting may even be necessary, he says later. So having a desire, particularly a desire to fast, a desire for the presence of God, that's not evil. The point of fasting is two things. One, it reminds you that you rely on God for whatever you are fasting from. Most often it's food. That's the, the most typical fast, the scriptural fast, is to fast from food. It shows you that you rely on God for that thing. That when you eat, it is not because you were hungry, it is because God provided for you to eat. See, in a culture where we have an abundance of food, we don't really have to think about going hungry, most of us. We just simply eat when we get hungry. But if you are fasting from that food, it shows you, no, I, I can't eat unless God provides. That's one reason why you might fast. It might also, you might also be fasting to remind you that what you actually need is him. It's not food that you need. It's not the water you need. It's him that you need. Food isn't the point. He is. What you want, what you need, it can be found only in him. So when you fast, that hunger that you feel, it's a reminder that just as your stomach longs for food, so does your soul long for God. He's the only thing that can satisfy you. So fasting, clearly from this story, but also from the rest of Scripture, having a desire to be filled in him, that is not evil. You having a desire, you having a want, that's not evil. That's not Christ's point when he rebukes the Pharisees here. He's not saying what you're doing is evil. He's saying fasting is not the end. Fasting's not evil. It's just not the point. You don't fast just because it's something to do. You don't fast because you got bored. You fast to be filled. You fast so that in your hunger, you can be filled. That's why he answers them the way that he does. He says, fasting's not evil, but fasting's not a feast. What the disciples have in him is a feast. So why would they fast? John's disciples, the Pharisees, yeah, they can, they can fast. That's fine. They don't have Christ. Christ came to fill, not to cause you to fast. He fulfills our desires. He's the end of our longing. He's the end of those desires, the end of our hunger. Matthew 5, 6 in the Beatitudes says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Because they are going to be satisfied. See, it doesn't say blessed are those who hunger and thirst because hunger and thirst are good things. It's blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be satisfied. That's why they are blessed. Christ came not to cause you to hunger, not to cause you to thirst, 
but that he might fill you. The hunger is not the point. The thirst isn't the point. Being satisfied, being filled in Christ, that is the point. He came not that you would hunger for him, but that you would be filled in him. Fasting is not evil, but fasting is simply not a feast. That's why Christ gives them a wedding metaphor here. He says, who fasts at a wedding? The bridegroom is here. It's party time. If you go to a wedding and you say, no thanks, I'm fasting, no cake for me. Well, why'd you even show up? You're at a wedding. The bridegroom's here. You feast. You celebrate. It's not a fast that you came to perform. It says, you don't fast at a wedding. You feast. That's the point that Christ makes here in verse 19. It says, as long as the bridegroom is with them, they cannot fast. It is impossible for them to do so. The presence of Christ if they have that, every longing, every need, everything from which they would be fasting has been filled in him. He's there. They can't fast. They can only feast. He's saying, sure, to John's disciples, the Pharisees' disciples, they can fast when I'm not with them. But my guys? No. It's not fast time. It's feast time. They've got me. They can't long for my presence when they have my presence. I'm here. What are they fasting for? What they can do, what they should do, is to enjoy it. And this is relevant for us for a, a few reasons. One, we should probably be fasting more than we do. Uh, Baptists are not known for fasting. Uh, exhibit A. We're not known for fasting, but we probably should a little bit more than we do. Uh, but it's also important for us because we await a final feast. That's the point that Christ makes in verse 20. He says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in that day. That's our day. The bridegroom, though we have full assurance that he will come again, he's not with us right now. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, having finished the work that he came to perform. So we now, we long for his presence. We wait for his presence. We hope. We fast. And we await the coming feast. We should be a people who are marked by our desire for his presence. We should trust that our desires that we have will be fulfilled in him. We are going to get his presence. We have an unshakable hope that Christ will come again. And when he comes, he brings with him a feast. A final and everlasting feast. The Marriage Supper of the Lamb, Revelation 19, verses 6 through 9, which I think uh, Alan's going to have on the board for you. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. We have a feast that is coming. It's on its way. The book of Revelation is written almost in the present tense. It's here. 
it is so sure that it will be there. We have a feast that is coming. When Christ returns, he brings the feast with him. He brings the party with him. When we get his presence, we should respond in joyful worship through that celebratory feast. So fasting is, yes, something we should do more often than the likely never that we currently do. And we can fast with the full assurance that when we get him, we won't be left hungry. We'll be full, we'll be satisfied, because his presence is better. His presence is better than our desire for his presence. His presence is better. Not only is his presence better, but his way is better. Look at the next few verses. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the old from the new, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. So Christ answers them with a marriage metaphor and also a parable, a short parable. A parable in which the, the, the fasting, the old law, is the old garments, the old wineskin. He's saying that performing to get the presence of God, that's of the old. Keeping the law perfectly was a standard that no one could actually do, but now the Christ has come to meet that standard, to fulfill that law. So now he has come and done what they could never do. That old system, the old garment, the old wineskin, that falls away. We have a new patch. We have a new wineskin. And you cannot sew that new patch onto the old garment. You cannot put the new wine into the old wineskin. You have to have a new patch. You have to have a new wineskin. So the feast, the presence of Jesus, his fulfillment of the gospel, that's the new. The gospel is the new, the law is the old. Emmanuel, God with us, without the need for a fast, that's of the new. So he's come and he's fulfilled the law, he rules over the law, he replaces it with himself. That's the common thread throughout each of these stories in our text this morning, that Christ rules over the law. He is better than it. He replaces it with himself by fulfilling it in himself. He rules over the law, he replaces it. So now we, as New Testament Christians, we don't have an Old Testament law which must be kept perfectly. We have a New Testament God who must be followed. We don't have rules and regulations, we have a person. And that person's yoke is easy and his burden is light. He's already done the work. He's already fulfilled the law so that when we fall short of following him, he gives grace. See, the law never does that. The law only gets broken. That's what the law does. But Christ, when his law is broken, because he is a person, because he's the good and perfect God-man, he gives grace. Because he's already fulfilled the law in himself. The old law doesn't do that, but Christ does. So Christ is talking specifically about the covenant of salvation. He's talking about who we follow, how we are saved. That there, there was a law which we were not able to keep. Christ has come, fulfilled the law. So now, by putting your faith, hope, and trust in him and his finished work, you might be saved. That's the gospel. Through and through. That's what Christ is talking about here. But there's... That larger point can be applied in a lot of different ways in our lives. It can be applied specifically for us, specifically for this church. From this, we can see, first of all, that 
That which is old is not bad. Christ doesn't disparage the old garment. He doesn't disparage the old wineskin. He simply says, you can't mix the new with the old. That which is old is not bad. This church's heritage, the old rock church, the gospel work that this church has been doing since 1894, none of that is bad. There's not a moment of that that's bad. It's a story of the gospel going forth through a people for 125 years. That's a very good story. That which is old is not bad. But that which is old may be an old wineskin. Some of the things that we've done, some of the things that we've been, some of the things that we uh, have been a part of in this church, though they are not bad, they may be old. The old served a purpose. In its time, when it was made, it did its job perfectly. Look, if the old wineskin hadn't done what it was supposed to do, there would be no wine today. If this church, these people, have not done what they were supposed to do from the beginning, then the people in this room right now, we wouldn't be here. We have an old wineskin for which we should be very, very thankful. I hope, I pray, that in every word out of my mouth, any change that we possibly could make in this church, you know and hear that I love and appreciate the men and women in this church, not only in this room today, but the ones who came before us. There's not a moment of that that I'm not grateful for. But some of those wineskins may be old now. And in order for both that which is old and that which is new to be preserved, to fulfill its purpose, we have to have fresh wineskins for new wine. Now, I don't have a 12-step plan today. I'm not segueing mid-sermon into like a PowerPoint. Uh, these are the 12 new wineskins that we're going to have and the changes that we're going to be making. That, that's not coming. I don't have those for you. And honestly, if you're asking me about things that may need to be changed in this church, if anything, I want us to, to get more traditional, to have a deeper root, to be not the church of 1894, but the church of the last 2,000 years. I don't have a 12-step plan for new wineskins. What I do have is a goal, which is to preserve the wine. That's what Christ is saying in this parable. He's saying if you try to place the wine into the old wineskin, the old wineskin gets destroyed and the wine gets destroyed. You have to have a fresh wineskin for the new wine. So our goal is to preserve that which is old and that which is new so that the wine continues to go forward. The package which preserves the wine just doesn't matter. And if we're going to take the, the new wine of the gospel, the new wine of the new covenant, the new wine of what Christ came to die for, of his church, over which he rules. If we're going to take that to a dying world, just as this church has been doing for the last 125 years, we have to continually be looking at our wineskins and determining, is this old or is this new? Does this, does this need to be replaced? One day that's going to happen. One day they must be replaced. And guess what? The, the ones that we replace them with, they're going to have to be replaced too. And that's a good thing. You know why that's a good thing? Because that means you keep making wine. If you keep replacing the skins, it means you keep having the gospel to replace 
the skins win. You keep having a message. You keep fulfilling the Great Commission. It's a good thing for us to continue to evaluate what we do and how we do it. It means that we keep spreading the gospel. That is the way of Christ. He's saying there was an old law that we used to follow, and now there is a new gospel, a new man. So the structures begin to fall away in light of the person. And we have to continue to ask, are we allowing the structures to get in the way of the person? Or are we building our structures to point to the person? That's what we have to think about when we think about how we do things. How we look at the wineskins and the wine. Because Christ's way is better. Not only is Christ's way better, but his rest is better. With the next few verses, 28, uh, 23 through 28. Christ has come not simply to give us more jobs to do. He's not come to just say you have to keep replacing all these wineskins. He's come to give you rest. He's come to give you a better rest. You know why his rest is better? Because Christ, unlike the law, Christ will let you eat. Verse 23, one Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. Later, verse 25, he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? Christ's point here is, like, they can eat. They can eat. They can do what they're supposed to do. They're hungry, let them eat. Christ's rest is better because Christ will let you eat even when you're not supposed to. And all God's Baptists said amen. <laughs> I uh, confess I must have been hungry when I wrote this sermon. Uh, he's bringing a feast. He's making wine. He's letting us eat. We get to the man with a withered hand. If I'm not careful, he's going to be able to grab the food a little bit tighter once he's healed. Christ allowed his disciples to eat simply because they were hungry. Now that's a fairly obvious point, but I think it's one we could easily breeze over. Christ's disciples were hungry, and their master said, take and eat. He didn't turn and say, now Peter, you're going to spoil your Sabbath. He said, take and eat. Pluck the, pluck the heads of grain. I'm Lord of the Sabbath. He let them go for it. That's Christ's response. That's what he does. He allows his people to eat while the law is going to starve you. That's what the Pharisees answered with in verse 24. They were saying to him, look, why are they doing that which is not lawful on the Sabbath? You see the Pharisees' response. The, the, no, that broke the rules. You can't do that. They can't eat. It's not time. They represent the voice of the law in this story and really the voice of the law in most stories. And they say no. Say no. The law says you can't eat because the time has not yet come. The law is going to starve you. But you serve a God. You serve a Christ who is Lord even of the law. The, the point from these verses at the end, 27, 28, he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. That is a point I've come to appreciate even more uh, now that I have a child, now that I have a daughter. There are times, more often than I wish existed, uh, when she is supposed to be napping, but she's hungry. 
so she can't nap. She said, she's, wah, I'm hungry. Feed me. Now, what kind of father would I be if I said, no, it's not time? I'm not supposed to eat now. You're supposed to nap now. Baby Jay, you're supposed to be resting. According to the most up-to-date research, you're supposed to be sleeping 12 to 15 hours per day, which means that right now, at 1.37 p.m., you should have been asleep by seven minutes ago. No, I want you to grow up big and strong, so no food. <laughs> How ridiculous would that be? The law may say that it's nap time. The law may say the schedule we have made says she's supposed to be asleep. But if her stomach says she's hungry, then a good father says, okay, you can eat. Because I, I recognize that nap time was made for baby J, not baby J for nap time. Christ, who is Lord over the Sabbath, says the same thing to his people. That the Sabbath, which is standing here for the law, was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. You're able to follow Christ without the burden of following the minutia of the rules. Because your trust in him is such that even if you were to break the rules, it's still in the purpose of following him. Which is what the disciples were doing. They were with him as they did it. Christ is Lord of the Sabbath. He's the Lord of your rest. And he comes to give you that rest. Matthew 11, 28 through 30, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. My burden is light. He doesn't say, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. And I'm going to give you some tips. Come to me all who labor. All you who are heavy laden. And in me you will find rest. Christ came that his people might have rest. He's come to give it to you. In him, in his finished work, he has done the work. Now you can rest in him, secure. His rest is better. His rest is better. And his rest is better because his heart is better. Final point today, looking at the, the last six verses, uh, the first six verses in chapter 3. The heart of Christ is shown in those verses in Matthew that I just read, that he is gentle and lowly in heart. That's a description of his heart. But then we get to see that heart in action in these next six verses. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with a withered hand, come here. He said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. We can see the heart of Christ in this story, in these six verses, but we have to contrast that with the heart of his opposition, the heart of the Pharisees. See, they have a, a very different heart from the heart of Christ that we see here. They do not care for the people. Verse 1 and 2, there's a man there with a withered hand. They don't even mention him. They don't talk to him. They don't talk about him. They don't do anything to try to help him. They don't care about the person that's in front of them. 
their focus is just on Christ, who they perceive to be their enemy. And that enemy, they watch him specifically to accuse him. They're hoping that he heals the man, not so that the man's hand gets fixed, but so that they can accuse him. They're sitting there hoping that he's going to heal him so they can pounce. Just, oh, I hope he heals this guy. That's going to show everybody what a monster he is. They're hoping to accuse him. That's their heart. And whenever they're confronted, they have no answer. Christ asked them a question, and they just sit there. They can't speak for themselves. They're confronted, and they have no answer for their behavior, so they fall silent. Their pride, their immaturity, their shame, it keeps them both from answering honestly, but also from being the kind of people who have an answer they want to say out loud. They fall silent. Their hearts are hard. Verse 5, he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Their hearts are what grieves Christ. They have hearts of stone, which are capable of focusing on the rules, trying to follow the rules, but not soft, regenerate hearts, which could actually have some sort of compassion on this man. And those hard hearts, taken to their end, lead to murder. Verse 6, they went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Not only are their hearts hard, but they're murderous. Christ makes them look foolish. Rather than seeing the error of their ways, turning to the Christ who has just healed a man's hand, they decide that guy's the problem. They plot to kill him. That's the heart of the Pharisees. But now let's look at the heart of Christ here. Jesus, when he shows up on the story, he speaks to the outcast. He said to the man with the withered hand, come here. No one else in the story acknowledges the man's presence directly. He was an outcast. He wasn't worthy of their focus. But not to Christ. He speaks to the outcast. Not only does he speak to them, but he tells him, come here. Come to me. He doesn't say stay over there. I can heal you from a distance. That's fine. Come here. Get closer. Come see me. I am the great physician and I can heal you. Not only that, he uses this as an illustration to show that he's willing to do what he isn't supposed to do. They were right by the, the clearest and plainest interpretation of the, the letter of the law. It was not lawful to heal on the Sabbath because that's doing a work. But again, Christ, who is Lord of the Sabbath, Lord of the law, fulfills the law, does not break the law, and still heals the man. He knows what am I supposed to do? Healing, one, is no work for the God of the universe. He has no power which is expelled and lost by healing this man. But also it's the purpose for which he came. It's why he's there. It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. To save on the Sabbath. And it's a good thing for this man that he does. Christ, after he heals, has a righteous anger. Verse 5. He looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. When Christ confronts the Pharisees, his emotional response is anger. He has a, a righteous anger against the Pharisees. So yeah, some things should make us angry. Probably not the things that generally do, but some things should. 
the hardness of someone else's heart? Someone's disobedience to Christ? An injustice performed against someone else? That could be a righteous anger. That could reflect the heart of Christ in this story. So anger is not necessarily evil. It can be a righteous evil. It can be a righteous anger. Anger. Anger over things which anger Christ can be a righteous anger. But we have to be very careful about what we're angry about if we're trying to follow Christ here. Because Christ, though he is angry, he has a soft heart. His anger was due to the, heart, the hardness of their heart, which reveals the softness of his. He says to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and the hand was restored. When Christ is confronted with the hardness of the Pharisee's heart, he does respond in anger against that hardness. But he doesn't respond in retribution against that hardness. He responds in the healing of the man. When Christ encounters that kind of sin, his response was anger. But because he has a heart which is soft, which is gentle, which is lowly, it's soft toward his creation. When he grows angry against the Pharisees, his response is to heal that which is broken. Don't miss that. When he's angry toward the Pharisees, he heals the man. When Christ encounters sin, he heals that which is broken. That's the heart of God. When you sin, if you are in him, when you show your ugly brokenness to the God of the universe, though he does have an unchanging anger against that sin, he has an unchanging softness toward his people. His response is to heal, to redeem, to save. That's the heart of Christ. And his heart is better. Christ simply is better. He's better. His heart is better. His way is better. His presence is better. He's better. I have reasons, but I don't think I need them. Who he is simply is better. He's better than anything else you can find. His presence is better even than the desire for his presence. His way is better even than the good ways of the past. His rest is better even than some other mandated rest. His heart is better than any other man's. So we've got to stop trying to find other things that are going to satisfy us. We've got to stop trying to trying to find other things that are going to show us how to live. We can be satisfied in Him. We can follow His way. We have to stop trying to find rest in any other way, any other work. We can rest in His finished work. We have to stop trying to find any other love, any other heart. And we have to receive the love from the one whose heart is better than any other. It's my prayer that we can see Him as better today. <laughs> we can live like he's better today. That when we see the heart of Christ in the story, our response is to want that heart. Not to have a hardness of heart which might grieve him. It's my prayer for this church that we can pursue the one who is better, no matter where that takes us. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us. Thank you for uh, the opportunity to thank you this week. Thank you for.
for sending the Christ who is better. Sending him not merely to show his own superiority and to leave, but to show his own superiority in saving us. Not for us to know that he is better, to live like he is better, to trust that he is better. When we try to find other things that are going to satisfy us, help for us to long for that which is meant to satisfy us. Help for us to long for your presence, which is better. Help for us to follow your way, which is better. Help for us to rest in your finished work, which is better. Help for us to follow your heart, which is also better. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.